Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. May 24th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new study from the CDC says Mississippi's capital has the second highest STD rates in the nation. Policymakers in the Gulf South consider grants which could help improve homes and prevent roof damage during hurricanes. And this week's History is Lunch remembers the 60th anniversary of the Woolworth sit-in. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's capital has the second highest rate of STDs in the nation, as you heard, according to a new study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Experts say one out of every 100 Jacksonians have been diagnosed with an infection. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Dr. Ben Brock, an infectious disease expert at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He says there are likely many more who haven't been diagnosed. I think the initial reaction that most people would have to that number would be to assume that it's due to risk behaviors, although risk behaviors don't generally differ between different populations or geographically. So uh, differences in risk behaviors, you know, in this case, risky sex, really don't account for the difference in uh, sexually transmitted infection rates across the country. It's really a health equity issue. And when you look at heat maps for the country for sexually transmitted infections of you know various types, the maps look almost identical to all sorts of other health outcomes like strokes, obesity, infant mortality, the list goes on. And so there has to be something different about the environment in the U.S. Southeast that accounts for these differences in all these health outcomes, not just sexually transmitted infections. So it's more of a reflection of the environment in which we live and our not just healthcare environment and public health environment, but a whole host of other things uh, that include socioeconomic factors and what we would call social violence. Jackson, Mississippi was initially first place, and now Memphis is first and Jackson is second. Is this a reflection of Jackson numbers getting better or just Memphis numbers getting worse? Mississippi and the rest of the Southeast tend to be uh, on the top for all these various health outcomes, including sexually transmitted infections, and tend to just fluctuate from year to year. We've actually had an uptick in syphilis cases in uh, Mississippi over the last five years or so, and a a concerning 
uh, number of new congenital syphilis cases. So if anything, our numbers are getting worse. Do you believe a different education or maybe even a better education on sexual health would be helpful in lowering our STD rates in the state? Sure. And um, there's no single intervention that's going to move the needle with sexually transmitted infections. It's uh, just as with all health in, in a population, it requires sort of targeting it in multiple different uh, venues. And so we already mentioned healthcare access, um, and that includes both access to physical locations to go for screening, but also uh, healthcare coverage to be able to access those services, um, beefing up access to public health as well, either through state or federal um, intervention. But certainly education is a component of addressing sexually transmitted infections. I, th I think it's well established that absence only is by itself not an effective way uh, to prevent sexually transmitted infections because humans have sex. Other than that, there are also biomedical interventions, and I think that's what's really needed here is that, you know, risky behavior is never going to change. People are going to have sex. Um, consistent condom use is uh, one strategy to address STDs, but by itself is not going to be enough. Um, hopefully down the road we'll have more what they call biomedical interventions such as um, treatments for prevention or hopefully someday a vaccine and that's really uh, what's lacking right now with all of our sexually transmitted infections uh, human papillomavirus hpv is the only sexually transmitted infection currently that has an fda approved vaccine you know that's highly effective for uh, high-risk hpv strains but we're lacking uh, vaccine for HIV, for syphilis, for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Those are the other sexually transmitted infections, you know, biggest public health importance. And uh, hopefully developments of safe and effective vaccines at some point in the future uh, would be what's really needed to be able to move the needle. But short of that, and there are some promising therapies for prevention kind of in the pipeline or that are um, under investigation. But short of that, access to routine screening and, um, yeah, education is important. If people only go for a checkup, if they're having symptoms from a sexually transmitted infection, then that's sort of the tip of the iceberg and won't ever move the needle uh, as far as um, transmission of cases. So we really have to emphasize routine screening and treatment of asymptomatic infection. Advocates for sexual health say education can give folks the tools they need to stay healthy and have safe sex. Valencia Robinson is executive director of Mississippi in Action. It's a reproductive health and advocacy group. She says the risk of STDs can be hard to communicate when conversations on sex are so limited. People are not going to get screened for STDs because of different reasons. Stigma may be one. Another one is the lack of trust in some of these healthcare services providers and just the fact that we don't pay attention to our bodies sometimes. So that could be a reason because the thing about it, people are not having, you know, in Jackson more sex than anybody having more sex in, in Madison. It's just in proximity, and Jackson is the capital. So everybody comes into Jackson for services, to party, to eat. And so that's what could be a contributing factor of the rise in STDs. 
Right. And and the study did say Jackson specifically, but of course, Mississippi as a whole is dealing with some STD numbers. What about our health care system leaves our Mississippians vulnerable to STDs? Well, you know, number one, not expanding Medicaid is a reason. And then like in rural areas, even in Hines County, might not be Jackson specific, but even in rural areas of Hines County, there are no hospitals. The clinics are in these areas. They may be open once a week, twice a month. And so for people to access services and don't have transportation, that could be a reason as well. So our health care system is not good. We have no standard care, no standards of health care. And most people can't afford uh, to go to primary doctors or private doctors. So they use the emergency room as primary care sometimes. What about the state of our sexual education process in Mississippi is potentially contributing to this problem, do you think? We've always fought for a medically and accurate and age-appropriate education in, in school for sex ed, but sometimes we, we know they're not going to allow the conversation in schools because, I mean, of course they're trying to take race out of the uh, school system. So we know STDs will not be talked about. At one point, we were talking about um, what, what was it? It was some legislation from years ago that said STDs. You can't talk about comprehensive sex education. You couldn't talk about birth control, and you couldn't talk about abortion as a form of birth control. I am a certified abstinence educator, and a group of young folks folks that I worked with did not have a clue about abstinence. And in some instances, people, these young folks, what, what we call having what we call survival sex. Um, to get some of their basic needs because they were not able to get them, you know, their families couldn't afford them. But also we have to have honest conversations. And given the fact that we are in Mississippi, a sex ed, comprehensive sex, sexual conversation is looked down on, you know, because we in Mississippi, we're supposed to go to school, go to church, and not even talk about sex. And we do have to uh, educate our communities in a way that these kids are able to get the information, the accurate, correct, and age-appropriate information. So we have to do what we need to do as organizations, as families, to give this information to our kids. Coming up, grants could help residents along the Gulf Coast avoid major roof damage during hurricanes. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Drive through any town after a hurricane and you'll see blue tarps covering damaged roofs. A program in Alabama gives grants to homeowners to retrofit their houses so they don't blow away next time. As WWNO's Carly Berlin reports for the Gulf States Newsroom, Louisiana wants to follow suit. Karen Ellis grew up on a quiet rural road in Loxley, Alabama, down near the coast. Her family built a small ranch house here in the 60s. 
It's made of brick and always felt solid. But in 2020, a few years after Ellis moved back in to take care of her elderly mom, Hurricane Sally blew through here. It ripped a hole in the roof and rain started leaking in. The Ellis family couldn't afford to replace it. So they put one of those blue tarps over the roof, but it didn't last long. It was a blue up there, but the blue wasn't strong enough. It blew away, and so my brother went and brought another one, a bigger one. It took the tarp took care of it until, uh, you know, to now. Today, that old damaged roof is coming off, and this crew is putting a new, hardier one on. And the best part for the Ellis family, a state program is covering almost the entire cost. It's called Strengthen Alabama Homes, and it gives people grants up to $10,000 each to help storm-proof their houses. The money goes toward retrofitting homes to something called the Fortified Standard, basically a set of construction guidelines for building houses that can withstand severe weather. Harry Crump is the contractor here working on the Ellis' house. He says there are a few things that make a fortified roof different from a regular roof. First, special nails, called ring shank nails. They look kind of like screws, and their job is to keep your roof attached to the rest of your house. Because turns out, standard smooth nails... You can pull those out pretty easily. Well, a ring shank nail, is a, it locks itself in the wood because it's got rings around it. Once those nails are in, Crump's crew puts a protective layer called an ice and water shield over the Ellis' roof, which will help keep the rain out. If you blow a few shingles off, you still have the ice and water shield, which will protect you from the rain. So, pretty simple. You've got your special nails, your protective shield, you secure the edges, slap on some heavy-duty shingles, and you're good to go. Part of the point of Strength in Alabama, it encourages people to replace their old roofs using these materials that will actually make it through a storm. But it's got a bigger goal, too, to save the coastal insurance industry. Well, it came out of necessity. The state was experiencing severe recurring storms along the coast, and insurance companies were taking some pretty hard hits. Brian Powell is the director of the Mitigation Resources Division at the Alabama Department of Insurance. When Alabama got hit by Hurricane Ivan in 2004, and then Katrina the year after, property insurance companies had to pay out a whole lot of claims all at once, and the insurance industry faltered. Some companies stopped renewing policies, and insurance premiums for homeowners started getting way more expensive. Powell's job, it was to find a way to reduce the risk of loss in the first place, before companies got stressed and homeowners got screwed. He says he had one place to start, with the homes themselves. The way to do that is to put in place some mechanisms so that the homes are kept intact as these storms come through. He came up with the Strength in Alabama Homes program, and he says it's a win for the insurance companies. Because houses built to withstand severe weather mean fewer post-storm payouts. The grants are funded by fees paid from the insurance industry, so the state isn't out any money. He says the insurance market on the coast has rebounded. And the market is becoming very healthy down there, so it's, it's been a, a, an overwhelming success. Such a success that other states are looking to follow suit, including Louisiana. Here's Louisiana's Insurance Commissioner Jim Donilon speaking before a state Senate committee in March. We're copying it from Alabama. 
The qualifications are virtually the same. But for Louisiana, this will be a tall task. The state was hit by seven name storms between 2020 and 2021, and the insurance market is in free fall. And to understand Alabama's coastal insurance success, you have to look beyond just the Strength in Alabama Homes program. It's funded around 6,000 homes, but that's actually a small fraction of the total number of fortified homes there, around 40,000. And there are only 50,000 of these homes across the whole country, which means Alabama's really leading the way. That's partly because some places in coastal Alabama have baked the fortified standards into their municipal building codes. So when new houses go up, they're all fortified. There's also an added bonus for homeowners, the icing on the cake, really. Once the fortified work is done, they get a discount on their insurance premium. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Carly Berlin in Loxley, Alabama. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. If you'd like to hear more about Strength in Alabama and what that could look like in Louisiana, check out the latest episode of The Sea Change. It's a podcast from WWNO and WRKF, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, the Woolworth sit-in in Jackson is commemorated. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is MP. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Sixty years ago, students and faculty from Tougaloo College staged a sit-in at the Woolworths lunch counter in Jackson. They were challenging the state segregation laws. It would quickly become one of the most violently attacked sit-ins during the 1960s. Civil rights activists were beaten, burned, and attacked with broken glass. Our Michael Guidry speaks with Mike O'Brien. He will be speaking about the sit-in during today's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. Well, the, you know, the Jackson uh, civil rights movement had been kind of an up-and-down affair, uh, kicked off, uh, you know, there had been a lot of different types of uh, activities, but really starting in the ni- in 1960. Um, but it was kind of up and down. There was a big demonstration, a library sit-in in 1961, uh, followed the next year, of course, by the big uh, Meredith um, integration crisis at Ole Miss. Uh, and then th- this uh, Jackson Woolworth sit-in followed right along. So it had been kind of a building program throughout the state, and and Jackson, as the political capital, was really uh, a central part of all that. Why why Woolworths? I mean, we know that, you know, it's a segregated department store, you know, the lunch counters, you know. This was a very calculated, carefully constructed plan, uh, a plan that involved, you know, young activists, both black and white. Uh, Why Woolworths? Well, I think Woolworths was chosen, really, because it had already established 
uh, itself or demonstrators had already established it, that Woolworths as the place, if there was one in your city, that's the place to go because the first demonstration, student-led demonstration in 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina, was at a Woolworths. So a lot of folks uh, in the various southern cities picked Woolworths for that reason. Um, and, of course, because it was on Capitol Street to localize it in Jackson, um, Capitol Street was historically a place where black people didn't feel welcome when they went into stores. Um, you know, they, they could use the money to buy stuff at the five and dime, but they couldn't sit down at the lunch counter. And really, Woolworths is one of those stores that had lunch counters. So that was an important aspect as well. And it was this sit-in um, that was captured uh, iconically where we see the protesters sitting at the lunch counter uh, and, and then a mob of people surrounding them dumping drinks and condiments and sugar. Um, you know, how did not only the sit-in but, but capturing that iconic moment, um, you know, elevating it and projecting it for the world to see, um, make it, as you call it, a, a seminal moment in Mississippi civil rights history. Yes, yes. That that uh, photographer, Fred Blackwell, who was a 22-year-old rookie photographer for the Jackson Daily News at the time, um, did, and particularly in Jackson, by capturing that photograph. I mean, it has become the go-to photograph to represent what sit-ins were like in the 1960s for civil rights. Um, and in Jackson, it... it uh, the, the sit-in itself and the, the fact that it had gone on for so long was a three-hour sit-in. Um, it, it was plenty of time for media to take pictures, to capture it on film, to send out uh, around the country and around the world. Um, it really uh, turbocharged, I'd say, the movement in Jackson. Finally got a, a somewhat, uh, you know, not quite interested black community interested all of a sudden. And uh, that evening after the sit-in, uh, nearly a thousand people showed up at the mass meeting to really begin focusing and um, supporting a movement that Medgar had, Medgar Evers had tried to get started for, you know, ever since he had been uh, the, sec the secretary to the NAACP in Jackson. And that actually is an interesting uh, pivot point segue because you, you mentioned Medgar Evers, um, you know, as field secretary, you know, a, an integral part of planning um, these protests, um, you know, uh, representing activists and, and protesters within the legal system. And as we, we've talked about this being kind of that seminal moment, um, really, you know, um, gathering people to the cause. And it's easy to look back and kind of, you know, say, okay, two weeks later, you know, clearly this was, these things were connected, but, but what happened during those, those two weeks? What, what do we have a record of uh, that really show that, you know, this was a, a domino effect. This was a, a response to the effectiveness of the Woolworth sit-ins. Exactly. Exactly. The, um, and that's what my book really takes the time to really go through the specifics of kind of every demonstration that occurred after the Jackson Wilbur sit-in daily. You know, uh, there, there were kids, mostly it was mostly, mostly a youth movement, and mostly the kids, the people who got arrested were people under the age of 18. Um, but every day after the Woolworths sit-in, there was a demonstration on Capitol Street. And some of them were massive. Um, 
the Friday, this happened on the Tuesday, May 28th, that year was on a Tuesday. Uh, by Friday, hundreds of kids, it's the last day of school, they're marching from every black high school in the city uh, towards Capitol Street, uh, and all of them are arrested, more than 400 um, at a time. And then it was really the fact that the sit-in jump-started a movement, and it built and built and built. Uh, at the same time that the political establishment was unwilling to make any compromises on uh, segregation. So so in my book, I, I certainly cover the fact that these two things were inextricably linked tragically um, with the with the killing of Medgar Evers. You know, I'm an outsider. I didn't uh, grow up in Mississippi. And so I, I wanted to make sure I'm on my toes with what I'm saying here in Jackson, but also um, one, I'll, I'll be also telling the story of how the book came about and why it was that I uh, came to write it and how, how that all happened. So that will be an interesting aspect of the, of the presentation as well. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier.